You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Great to see all of you, and I love worshiping together, and I love being in God's Word together. And once again, we find ourselves in this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. So if you have a Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 3. We'll continue on in there. If you have a phone or a tablet, turn that on and go to that section. And that being said, as I was thinking about our time in God's Word this morning, I was reminded of um, a, a very significant time in my life many years ago. I was a middle school pastor at my previous church when I first started out there and was the middle school pastor there for about six years. Loved it, loved investing in the lives of kids and seeing God do what only God can do. And yet at about year four of those six years, I began to feel this restlessness that I at the time couldn't put my finger on. In hindsight, I realized it was God preparing me for another season in my ministry life. So I wasn't sure where that was going to go. But about that time, we had a community care pastor who had been in vocational ministry for over 50 years. And he chose at that season to retire. And so the leadership decided that they would mentor me with him and that I would eventually become the community care pastor, which is what he was at our church. So for about a year, in transition between being a middle school pastor and stepping in to be the community care pastor there, I got to mentor with this man. And it was one of the most richest seasons in my life. Basically, wherever he went, I went. Whatever he did, I did. And he instructed me and taught me along the way. It was it was amazing. And one of the things that you do as a community care pastor is you find yourself in a lot of hospitals. You go to see people before and after surgery. And I remember on one of those first hospital visits, this pastor's name was Walter. Pastor Walter telling me, okay, here's some do's and don'ts. Here's some don'ts. Don't sit on the bed. Don't talk too much. Don't pray too long. You know, and, um, you know, don't be oblivious to what's going on. Here are some do's. Do be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Do listen carefully and fully. What is the message behind the words? What, what are the fears? What are the anxieties? What is it that's not spoken? And then and, and pray. Pray with purpose. And so we would go into these hospital rooms and, and would see folks. And as time went on, he gave me more and more responsibility with that. And I remember one of those initial visits, we went into this hospital room of this lady who had been recovering from a major surgery. She was just about to get out of the hospital. So she was very lucid, very aware, and, and could engage in conversation. So we went in to talk to her. And as we were doing so, he said, okay, let's have you pray at the end of our time together today. You can, you can pray. And this was going to be my first time praying in that kind of a setting. So I thought, great. So we went in, and Pastor Walter began to talk to her. And, of course, she knew him, and they were very, very engaged. In fact, she was particularly engaged and seemed really, really friendly and seemed to really, really like Pastor Walter a lot. And as we came to the end of the conversation, she paused for a moment and she looked at him and she said, Pastor Walter, you look a lot like my third husband. <laughs> and, she, and he said, well, Doris, you only have had two husbands. And she leaned back in her bed and smiled and said, exactly. <laughs> Now, the problem was Pastor Walter was married, (laughs) and she knew that, and she couldn't blame that on morphine or something, right? But if that wasn't the coup de grace, Pastor Walter, in this awkward silence, turns to me and says, well, why don't you pray, Pastor Jay? (laughs) Unbelievable. 
But this passage that we're looking at today is all about who are we modeling ourselves after? Who are we following? How are you maturing and growing in your relationship with Jesus? These are all questions that we're gonna wrestle with as we walk through this passage together in Philippians chapter three. And as we do so, I wanna reach back into last week. For those of you who weren't here last week, Pastor Gabe Myers, our Hispanic ministries pastor, preached a wonderful sermon on the passage that precedes this, but it is a unity of thought. So I wanna go back because this all rolls together. Look at those verses that Gabe preached this through last week and then we'll focus on the verses that we're gonna look at today. So here we go, this is Philippians chapter three, verses 12 into the very beginning of chapter four. And this is Paul writing this when he says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now our verses today. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have had us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, Dear friends, so let's work our way back through this and look at this whole value, this whole reality of what it means to mature in Christ. First off, he tells them to follow his example. And as we read this, we might think, well, isn't that a little prideful? But, but it's not. In fact, there's a very important principle that's being taught here. Number one, it's not prideful because he's not just saying follow his example. He goes on to say, you know, follow those who live as we do. And to further add defi- definition to that, in some of the other letters that Paul wrote, he says this very thing. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, as much as I imitate Jesus, imitate me. We should follow godly examples. In fact, we should find godly mature examples and very deliberately learn from them. And we'll come back to this in just a little bit. But he moves on then and says that there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're not 100% sure of who he's talking about here, but we're pretty certain he's talking about the folks we've already looked at in this passage the Judaizers, who he referred to as the dogs, which was not a compliment, who were selling empty religion. 
by basically telling new Jesus followers that that was not sufficient, that they needed to become Jews as well. And Paul was rightfully saying, when you begin to add to the gospel, you begin to lose the gospel. And Pastor Gabe helped us see these realities last week. And again, if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. It will fill in a lot of gaps. But he's referring to probably those enemies of the cross of Christ. But I want you to see the attitude by which he's doing it. Paul has used some appropriately necessary, truthful, tough language in describing this empty religion that's being sold to people. But here it says he's, he's also confronting it with tears. Not compromising truth. Confronting false teaching, to be sure. But doing it with compassion. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, how is he able to maintain that balance? Because that is pretty difficult. When you're dealing with false teaching, false teachers, people who are deliberately trying to keep people from coming to know Jesus, people who are selling false religion, false belief systems that continue to keep people trapped in their brokenness rather than giving them a way out through the inside-out change that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ, it's really easy to be condemning of that. And yet, Paul does confront that, but he does it with compassion and with tears. And I think he's able to do that because of something that Gabe helped us see last week. And that is, at one point, Paul was one of those dogs too. He was one of those who was out to destroy Christianity. In fact, he was personally responsible for sending Jesus followers to their deaths prior to him meeting Jesus on that road to Damascus in the book of Acts. So how can we, can have, how can we have compassion towards the very people who are keeping other people from coming to know Jesus? Because didn't we all start out in the same place? Doesn't everybody start out broken? I certainly did, and you do too. Before you know and receive Jesus in your life, you are broken, so therefore, we can never look down our nose at someone else and say, I'm never like that, or be condemning. It's not our place to be condemning. That's, that's God's place. And he only does so after people have had multiple opportunities time and time and time again to repent and to turn towards him for life and hope. So all that being said, we see this balance here of speaking the truth in love. And I think that's, that's important. But he goes on to say that these enemies of the cross are living in a very broken way. Their God is their stomach. Their mind is set on earthly things. And, and we need to wrestle with that a little bit because that's not entirely clear at first pass. What does it mean to make your God your stomach? And that's more than just food, by the way. And what are earthly things? Many scholars believe, as we wrestle with this question, that when Philippians was written, Paul also wrote another letter to a church in Colossae, that he also wrote that from prison at about this time of his life. And in the book of Colossians, he actually defines for us what earthly things are. He calls it the earthly nature, but he says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So when we think about 
someone's God being their stomach. This is a first century euphemism. And what it means is really, it's not just talking about thinking about food, it's thinking about whatever appetites you have. Whatever bodily cravings, bodily appetites you have. Which, if you really reduce those down to what's being talked about here and what Colossians just talked about, it's food, drink, and sex. That's really what's being talked about here. So, is this relevant for your life and mine today? Does this speak to the culture we're in today? Do we live in a culture in the greater metropolitan area of Portland that values food and drink? Oh, people, you gotta get out more. (laughs) Do you realize I've talked to them? There are people who literally come from all over the world to eat our food. Portland is known as a foodie paradise. There are so many little holes in the wall, food carts, places you can go to get unbelievably good food and the word has gotten out and people are coming to eat our food. People are also coming to drink our beer. Do you know that Portland has the most microbreweries of any city in the country, hands down? In fact, I remember talking to this one speaker who came to Western Seminary who's, you know, written these amazing books and is an incredible communicator. And I remember talking with him with some other people in this small group. And one of the things he was most looking forward to was trying some of our microbrews. Because this is what we do here. We make good beer and evidently we make good wine to boot, right? Now, Food, drink, good things meant to be enjoyed but not meant to be abused. And what this is talking about, whose people, these people have made food and drink and sex, by the way, the focus of their lives. This is how really they define themselves. They have made these things so important that it's like a little God in their life and that's what an idol is. And you, take, you can take any good thing and distort it and abuse it and make it a God in your life. Which, by the way, something I'd rather we weren't known for is that per capita, we have more strip clubs per capita than any city in the United States. That's something I'd rather not be known for. Sex trafficking is rampant up and down the I-5 corridor and Portland and even our community here is, is a part of that. Once again, sex designed by God to be enjoyed to be fulfilling, to be wonderful between a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship for life. And when scripture says sexual immorality, it's talking about anything that falls outside of that. Anything that falls outside of that is broken and is not God's design and what God wants. But food, drink, sex, all designed to be enjoyed when used the way God wants them to be used and experienced the way God wants us to experience those. But those are all good things that can become distorted to be little mini-gods in our lives and that's what this is talking about for. But it does beg a bigger question. What are you hungry for this morning? What are those desires, those passions in your life that control you, that compel you? And if we're honest with ourselves, probably all of us could put our finger on at least something in our lives, an appetite, a craving, a desire that is broken. 
and the hope of what Paul is proclaiming here, the reality of what can be true for you and me is if you know Jesus, you don't have to live like that anymore because you are a citizen of heaven. Meaning that when you invited Jesus Christ into your life, you did not adopt a moral code. You did not start performing and experiencing religious rituals. You changed from the inside out. The very core of what makes you, you has been changed. The Bible calls it your heart. It is the seat of your emotions, your values, your priorities, your attitudes, and yes, your behavior. And that got transformed. And that is one of the many things that differentiates Christianity from all other worldviews is that God comes to you. You don't seek God. And if you will receive God into your life through his son, Jesus Christ, he will change you from the inside out, not through the outside in of empty religion, from the inside out of a relationship with the one true God. And therefore, you literally cross over from death to life, as scripture says. And the reality of that is there is no dual citizenship in the family of God. You're either in or you're out. And the only way in is through Jesus Christ. And the good news of that is, is you have a new identity. You no longer are defined by your past, as Pastor Gabe reminded us last week. So many of us are mired and stuck in the past. We find our identity in the past. We have what the Bible calls old clothes that we allow to, to still be on us instead of choosing to take them off and put the new clothes of who we really are on as citizens of, of heaven. And this has some very practical realities for us as we look at how we apply this to our lives. For starters, it means as a citizen of heaven, you need to pursue maturity. Or to put it another way, you don't try to be godly. You train to be godly. And there is a significant difference. And you intuitively get this. I will prove it to you through an epic fail on my part. Some of you have heard this story before, so if it's redundant, I apologize. But many years ago, I had a friend who came to me and said, Jay, you've got to do this thing with me. And I said, okay, what is this thing? And he said, it's called the Seattle to Portland race. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool. What kind of motorcycles? Oh, we don't use motorcycles. Oh, what do we use? Bicycles. You mean the kind you pedal? Yeah. And you ride from Seattle to Portland? Yeah. Okay, how long does it take? About a week or so? No, we do it in a day. Were you dropped on your head as a small child? What do you mean you do it in one day? No, really, you do it in one day. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I borrowed a bike, got on it a couple times before the race, started out in Husky Stadium at 5 a.m. the day of Seattle-Portland and had a healthy dose of Advil in my pocket and began to ride and it was outstanding. It was so amazing the first five miles. And then I realized I have 195 miles to go and I began to pop Advil and pray like I never have before. I made it 150 miles that day, which I was pretty proud of, all the way to Kelso Longview when I could not go any further after 13 hours of being on a bicycle and not being able to walk for three days. Talk about, 
Talk about paying the dumb tax all over again, right? And I thought, okay, that is not happening ever again. Next year, I trained and I got extra strength Advil. <laughs> and I did it in one day. There is a chasm, a world of difference between trying to do something and training to do something. In a room this size, I would submit to you, there are a number of you who are not maturing in Christ because you're trying instead of training. To your credit, you are here and that is so fundamentally important. And yes, if for some reason you have to be gone, the once or twice a year we bless you to be gone to take vacation, that's what the internet's for. Go back and listen to the messages. But in a day and age when I cross paths with so many Jesus followers who were not connected to a church community, do not let that happen to you because scripture explicitly teaches that there is a dimension of our relationship with God that we will only experience in community. Or to put it another way, there is a level of maturity you will only attain when you are in community. It is so fundamentally important that you are here discovering God together, but it doesn't just end here. And for some of you, Understand I love you, but speaking the truth in love for some of you, unfortunately, this is the extent of your spiritual maturity is the input you get on Sunday mornings and that cannot be. Of course you're not growing the way you want to in your relationship with the Lord. And this isn't about doing and being busier, but it is about training. It's so fundamentally important that you are in God's word for yourself as well. The reason we preach the way we do in part is to equip you to read the word of God for yourself because God wants to reveal himself to you in your own personal time in the word. And there are so many ways to be in the word these days. But there's also the reality of being in community here, not just on Sunday morning. It's why we have membership here at Grace. It's why we have community groups here at Grace. It's why we have the journey here at Grace. So you can be in community and continue to grow and mature and pursue maturity together. It's why we encourage you, whether you've been here a day or whether you've been here 20 years, to roll up your sleeves and to serve other people and to join one of the teams we have around here in doing so because you will grow and mature as a result. And it's one of the best ways to make friends and deepen relationships is to roll up your sleeves with us and join us in serving the community. We have 74 different ministry teams at this church. We have a place for you. We need more. There's a little yellow card in front of you called Serving with Grace. Man, that is a pathway for you into service here. Look it over, fill it out. We'll follow up with you, I promise, and we'll get you plugged in. Because maturity doesn't just happen. Years ago, I was invited as a freshman to be a part of this water polo team. And the way it was sold to me was water polo season is prior to swim season and I was a swimmer and I was told and sold on the idea that, well, this will condition me and get me ready for swimming. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I show up and the water polo coach says, okay, um, you're our only freshman. 
And um, everyone else kind of knows what's going on, so this is what I'd like you to do. Jump in the water, join the guys, you know, you'll catch on. Just, just watch and jump in when you can. And um, my water polo career lasted one year. Do you know why? Because it did not go so well for me. Do you know why? Because I was never taught. I was never instructed. I was never shown. I was just expected to watch and then get it. To mature means that you are intentional and that you receive instruction. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here, to seek and follow godly examples. And please understand, when he says to follow godly examples, that does not mean you just watch people. He is talking about a relationship here, a mentor relationship where you're not just reading books or watching people, but you are engaged in a meaningful, godly mentorship relationship that has many different forms and looks many different ways. But we see this principle lived out in Jesus' own life. What did Jesus do with the disciples? He didn't just say, watch me. He instructed them, he showed them, he taught them and then gave them feedback and then he sent them back out again. Very intentional in how he mentored and grew and matured his disciples. And this is where I'm going here. It is not fair to yourself to expect yourself to know how to live the Christian life without relationships in your life where you're learning how to do that. I'll give you a specific. Those of you guys who are married, where did you learn how to be the spiritual leader of your home? because you were called to lead and serve and love your families. So you either had no example, you had a bad example, or you had an incomplete example. Because no one has it all figured out, right? But now here you are, you're married, you're expected to lead your home. How in the world do you do that? What does that practically look like? Ladies, those of you who are married, What does it mean to be a godly wife? What is the unique role you have in discipling your kids if God has blessed you with kids? What is the unique role you have as a godly woman, as a godly wife? How do you do that? Do you just magically wake up someday and know how to do that? Oh, you can read books, you can look at examples. That will only take you so far. Or you're single. Maybe you've never been married. Or you've been married and now you're divorced. Or maybe you've lost your your spouse. You're a widow or a widower. Or you're a young single. Or, you know, we could go on down the list. For every season, every stage of your life, how do you know what it means to be godly? Yes, you need to read the word of God. Yes, you need to watch the lives of other people. Yes, you need to read other books by godly authors. Yes, you need to challenge yourself and equip yourself through those things but someone has got to show you how to do it for you to continue to grow and to reach a level of maturity that you're not going to find any other way. That is what Paul is talking about here. And in some ways, this sounds kind of alien to us because prior to the industrial age of the last century, this is how you did life. If you had a career, you were mentored into it. Older women naturally mentored the younger women in the various roles of their lives. Older men naturally mentored the younger men of our, of, of the, of, in their lives, and that's how it went. And we, in many ways, have lost this value, but this is the value that Paul is talking about here. 
And in many ways, we make it so much harder than it has to be. This week, I met with a mentor who's been in my life for 21 years. I would not be the husband, the dad, the pastor, the friend, the brother, and all the other relational hats I wear in my life without his input in my life to learn from, to encourage, to pray for me. Man, I am absolutely sold out on this value because I've seen it in my own life. And this is how we make it harder than it really has to be. We think, okay, well, I've never experienced that or I don't really know anybody or I don't know how to do that. Well, is there someone in your life who you admire, who you look up to, who's godly? Then ask them to invest their lives into you. That's what I did 21 years ago. No one connected me to this guy. I mean, I got to know him through a variety of circumstances and thought, man, I really, I respect this guy. And he is ahead of me in life stage as well as in his relationship with the Lord. I wonder if I can learn from him. I asked him if we could just give this a try and we did and it worked. There have been other people who have just outright said no to me over the years. Or we've tried it and it's, it's lasted for a season and that's good. You know, you define the season. It doesn't have to be 21 years to be effective. But the point is, who is the godly example in your life that you're learning from? Because that's what Paul's talking about here because the point isn't just for you to learn from godly examples it's to be one so are you because the other side of this is time and time again I've heard people say well I have nothing to offer someone else well there's no way I can mentor someone else if you know Jesus you were ahead of someone else and there is someone who can learn from you and who you can invest in And I long for the day for us as a church family, and then we're gonna move on here, where you come to this church and it is just understood and assumed you are going to be mentoring someone and in a mentoring relationship at some stage and some season of your life. Yes, there are seasons and stages of your life where it's not possible. In our survival years when we were having our babies, holy cow, it was enough I could do to sleep, let alone, you know, say hi to my wife and know who she was, right? There are those seasons where it's not gonna work, but most seasons it will, and we can't just say, oh, well, I've never experienced that or that doesn't work for me. That's that's how it works because we're called to live distinctly for Jesus. And there is a principle in here that, oh, it is so cool and so powerful, and we've gotta get through it rather quickly here. But in that verse where it says, live as citizens of heaven, another way that could be translated is live as a colony of heaven. And there is something there for us. Because one of the brilliant things that the Roman Empire did and why they were an empire of almost a thousand years was when they, would can- when they would conquer another culture or another people, they would take a colony of Roman citizens and they would implant it right in the middle of that culture. Philippi was one of those plants. It was a colony of Rome. Those were Roman citizens, by and large, who lived in Philippi, and they had a mission, and their mission was to colonize the people around them, to teach them Roman culture, to teach them Roman art, to teach them Roman science, to teach them Roman justice, and on it went until they became Romanized, and what Paul is saying here is we are out to heavenize the people around us. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are part of a colony of Jesus followers, and your mission, regardless of your life stage, regardless of your age, regardless of who you are, is to bring redemption and heaven to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your school, to your family, to your friends. That's what we do. 
When we see brokenness, when something's broken, we fix it in the name of Jesus. People and things. Justice. As opposed to a culture that we live in that grumbles, complains, criticizes, condemns, which, by the way, in Philippians chapter 2 in this letter we already looked at, we are exhorted to, encouraged to do everything without complaining or arguing. That's not how we roll. We actually do something about brokenness. We don't just condemn it. Because we eagerly await a Savior who is going to come back. But in the meantime, he is at work. He's bringing all things under his control. Someday we're gonna get new bodies when he comes back. And man, I'm looking forward to that. No more Advil, right? Everything's gonna work the way it's supposed to. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, it's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be spiritual. It's gonna be imperishable. And it's gonna be powerful. Sign me up. And if you're a citizen of heaven, good news. You are signed up. That is your future. That is your reality someday. But... We are called to wait expectantly, which means we don't just huddle together and stick it out and try to get through. No, we are a colony of heaven. We are proclaiming a gospel that we are on mission for, that there's a God who loves this world, who is fixing it, who is redeeming it, and we're a part of that. And it's happening. A number of you today are gonna go home and you're gonna turn on football. God bless you. When you do, there's a story that you need to know about that one of our elders, Sean Rowley, sent to me earlier this week. Entering the season today, the Philadelphia Eagles have the best record in the NFL, but that is not the compelling story. The compelling story is a story within the story. It's this picture right here, and for our friends who may be podcasting this, they won't be able to see it, but this is a picture of a hotel swimming pool, and that is about a fifth of the Philadelphia Eagles football team, and that is a baptism that took place this last week. Let me read this to you. Marcus Johnson, a wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, said he was baptized in a North Carolina swimming pool Thursday with the support of several of his teammates, and he tweeted out this photo of the event. This happened last week. Quote, first time being baptized. Corporate worship is a beautiful thing. Cleaned and reborn in Jesus' name. Hashtag wholeheartedly. Johnson was baptized in Charlotte at the hotel where the team was staying, according to CBS Sports. Alongside Johnson during his baptism was quarterback Carson Wentz, tight end Zach Ertz, offensive guard Stephen Wazowski, tight end Trey Burton, linebacker Jordan Hicks, and backup quarterback Nick Foles, among others. Chase Daniel, who is now a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, told ESPN in December of 2016 that when he was backup quarterback for the Eagles, that his team was, quote, by far the most spiritual team I have been on, unquote. Sounds like a colony of heaven, does it not? Five teammates, linebackers Jordan Hicks, Michael Hendricks, and Camus Grieger-Hill, and wide receivers Paul Turner and David Watford were baptized in the Philadelphia Eagles recovery pool late last year, according to reports. I think I just became an Eagles fan. <laughs> but that's not the point, is it? Wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever we do, we are citizens of heaven. Bring heaven and Jesus with you. As our worship team comes and as we respond to this amazing God, 
we are going to sing this amazing song that reminds us that he is the name above all names. He is the Lord of lords. You do not hold dual citizenship. If you know Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. So claim that, live that, own that, and experience that as we sing here this morning. Jesus, thank you that you are the God of all people in that you want all people to come and know you. Lord, I thank you that we do not have to be slaves or enslaved by our appetites and our desires and those things that time and time again beckon us away from you, call us to brokenness. Lord, thank you that as citizens of heaven, we don't have to live that way anymore. In fact, we are on mission now. We bring heaven with us wherever we go, so help us to be intentional about that by growing in you, by learning from one another, by being mentored by others and mentoring others. Lord, thank you that as Paul said, there is nothing better than knowing you. And so we sing that and live that now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.